Before I begin, I'd like to make a quick mention of something I should have said this morning and forgot. We have 24 students right now at the Memphis School of Preaching. Ten of them will start this Wednesday with orientation, and then they will head out Thursday morning and go to polishing the pulpit, which is one of the perks that they get to experience during their two years. Also on our campus sits a four-apartment building complex that houses 32 apartments, giving us the opportunity to give very cheap, cost and affordable, cost-effective and affordable housing to our students with just a very short walk from the apartments to the school building, the library, and even just a short drive from a lot of local restaurants and other uh, activities that can be done throughout the city that we live in in Germantown, Tennessee. And so I wanted to make mention of that before I forgot and uh, cover my bases there so I don't get fired. Uh, that's, that'd be a good thing, right, to keep my job. So uh, I, again, am thankful to be here tonight to have an opportunity to preach the gospel and to give you a, and I a chance to study the life of Jesus prior to the cross. What happens from the night he's betrayed until that last statement that we have him saying to those ladies as he's making his journey towards Golgotha. I remember being a young boy and walking out into the living room and being very disappointed when Dateline NBC was on the television screen. It was a very popular, still is, a very popular documentary series that comes out once a week with a brand new crime that has been covered in a documentary basis. And my father loves documentaries. And I knew that there was going to be nothing else on the television that night. And so I would just kind of retreat back to my room to do what I wanted to do. And then there was a night where I found myself as a grown man staying up into the wee hours of the morning. I'm a night owl. And I found myself reading the synopsis of a documentary and hitting play and realizing I am now just like my father I'm reading a documentary's information on purpose, and ever since then, I have devoured documentary after documentary. I'm enamored by them. I love to listen and see stories and how the detectives figured something out. And there are so many different documentaries on television that it wouldn't be out of the ordinary to see something called Crime Time come up on NBC where they're going to spend an hour talking about all of the things that happened to an individual and most always, it has to do with either a kidnapping or a murder. And when it comes to the murder, it's quite interesting when you hear people say, I didn't do it. This wasn't me. This was someone else. And tonight, I wish I could hit play and that we could sit down and watch a documentary of the disciples and Jesus giving the information about what happened. What an interesting... <laughs> What an interesting thing that would be to watch as Jesus himself would recall what happened. But we don't have that. But I can tell you this, Jesus would have been one of those that said, I didn't do it. But he actually didn't do anything that was worthy and deserving of death. You know that he was innocent. It doesn't take an educated scholar to read the life of Christ through the gospel accounts of Matthew through John and realize that we saw a man who committed no crimes a man who did not deserve to have such a punishment given to him. In fact, when the Bible tells us that he's crucified between two thieves, I like how one of the translations and one of the accounts puts it, thieves by brutality, basically. 
They were thieves by the act of murder even. They had gone in to take something, and in the process, they'd taken a life as well. And here's Jesus hanging between two murderers. What has He done to deserve such a punishment? I'd like to ask you to take your attention over to John chapter 18, and we're going to begin by looking at His betrayal. His betrayal, I've got to say this now because I almost said it. When I first made this graphic, I wrote betrayal accidentally. And this afternoon I showed that to Don, and then all afternoon we kept saying betrayal back and forth to each other. I knew that was a mistake. Uh, His betrayal is in John chapter 18 in verses 1 through 11. John writes a lot of things that are interesting, but I really have found myself to love his account of the betrayal more than any other. And when we look at the betrayal of Jesus, we find five betrayals take place in this one short 11-verse text. The first is a betrayal of knowledge. You might remember in our reading that the Bible says in John 18 and verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, He went over to a garden past the brook Kidron. And it was a garden that evidently was common for Jesus to take His disciples to go. And Judas, we're told in verse 2, He knew the place because of how commonly they would go and refresh themselves there and rest and take solace for a few moments that they could steal away to rest between their journeys. You know how unsafe that would make us feel if we knew that someone who had an intent to kill us knew where our favorite spot was? Here's Jesus going to a garden, and Judas is telling those that are going to take Jesus and arrest Him, I know exactly where He's going to be. This is where He'd always take us. Several years ago, I had car trouble, and I got stuck in Jackson, Tennessee for a week. I stayed at the Econo Lodge there in Jackson, Tennessee, because that was what was the most economic decision that I could make for my wallet, the Econo Lodge. Well, it was one in the morning. We got there late, and Megan and I were driving around to our room, and I said, oh, the the maid left the lights on. That's kind of strange, and we got a little closer. The maid left the TV on. That's kind of strange. The maid left a person in there. That's really strange. Somebody had broken in and were squatting in our room. They had a couple of people with them, and I remember thinking, uh, they must have given me the the wrong room. So I drive back around, and I told them, hey, uh, room 120, someone's in there. And they said, no one's supposed to be in there. I'll just go up to 220 instead. That didn't make me feel very safe. That whole week that I stayed there, I kept thinking, Is he going to break in here next, and I'm going to wake up one morning, and he's going to be sitting at the desk? The whole night that we were there, we thought, someone's going to break in. We're not safe here. And what's supposed to be a place where you can feel safe enough to rest your head at night automatically feels unsafe when you know how easy it must have been for someone to break in. And this garden, which was Jesus and His disciples' solitary place to go for refreshment and to rest is going to be attacked by a group of people who have no intention of resting with Him. They want to arrest Him. A betrayal of knowledge by His own disciple. There's also a betrayal of doctrine, though, that takes place because in John 18 and verse 3, we find Judas having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. 
I know the main duty of the chief priests and the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. It was one specific purpose. What they were supposed to do was follow the old law and point people to the Messiah. What they ended up doing was they became obsessed with having a following, and so it became all about them instead of about the law. And they began to deny that Jesus was the Christ. They began to deny that He was one who could perform miracles. And they became so obsessed with Jesus' following that they said, we know what we'll do. We'll just kill Him. That'll get rid of the problem. Where in the old law did it say that the one thing that they needed to do to be pleasing to God was when the Messiah came, now you kill Him and that's how you please me. That's not what the law said. Now the law did say Jesus was coming to be a lamb slain but not supposed to be a lamb slain by the very people who professed to be godly people, who professed to be all in it for the law, and they were all ready for that Messiah to come. That's not what their job was. They denied what they were supposed to teach when they looked at Jesus and said, you're not the Messiah. We'll just kill him. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm thankful for the sacrifice of Jesus, and I know the Bible teaches it was necessary. But you and I can study the lives of these religious leaders in Jesus' day and quickly see how much they betrayed doctrine on a regular basis. The doctrine of tradition was more important to them than anything else. And they were sending these troops to go and grab Jesus. A betrayal of doctrine. There's also a betrayal of duty that happens here in verse 5. John writes that they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. I don't know if you remember Matthew 10, verses 5 through 15, where we have recorded for us the responsibilities of the disciples of Jesus when he called them what they were supposed to do. And an entire sermon could be preached on that one text alone, but I want to take your attention there for just a moment... And I want you to specifically go to Matthew 10 and verses 8 through 10. Because when Jesus calls these disciples, Judas being one of them, He says in Matthew 10 and verse 8, You're going to go and heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely you've received, freely give. And then notice verses 9 and 10 specifically as well. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. Long before Paul would write, you don't muzzle the ox as it treads out the corn, Jesus said to his disciples, don't carry any money with you, because when you go and you work, people are going to want to pay you, and you're worthy of such a payment. And I always thought as a little boy that when Jesus tells us through John's pen that Judas was a thief in John chapter 12, that that meant that he was stealing from just the apostles, the disciples, and their money that they'd pooled together in the work that they embarked on because they all had money to give. Matthew 10 tells me that's not the case. Matthew 10 says they were told to bring no money with them, not even extra pairs of clothing and sandals, You go and you let people pay your way. And so when Judas said, why wasn't this sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And we're told he didn't say this because he really cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money bag. 
What it's ultimately telling us is Judas was stealing from God. And the money that had been acquired by doing the Lord's work. Now, I know theft is theft. But doesn't it make the news when a church is robbed? And don't the news reporters and the anchors talking about it act as though it is the worst robbery that they've ever heard about? Because, and it was a church too. Man has a different view when it comes to the Lord's money. At least they're supposed to. We're told throughout the Scriptures how to treat the Lord's money in regards to church activity. We take care of that in such a way that we hold it in a high regard so that we don't just frivolously spend it. We use it for a righteous calling and purpose to further the work of the kingdom. And Judas took what was given by doing the work for himself. But not only had he done that, he betrayed the very duty that he'd been sent out to do. In verse number 7 of Matthew 10, you go and you preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You be a disciple. And along the way, Judas stopped doing that because money became more important for him. How many people today have stopped being a disciple of Christ because something's gotten in the way? Something has come up that is more important. At least that's what we tell ourselves, but... In all honesty, you and I both know there's nothing more important than doing the work of a disciple. No matter the argument, no matter the excuse that we might give, nothing should come before we are disciples. A betrayal of duty. Then number four, there was the betrayal of Judas. Perhaps you haven't considered the fact that Judas himself was also betrayed because in order to sin, you have to be tempted. That's James 1. And in order for temptation to really have a placehold in your body and in your mind and a way for you to be tempted by something, there has to be a tempter. And this tempter is very good at what he does. Because every one of us in this room that has reached what we call that age of accountability and has stumbled and fallen short, I'd venture to say it's not for the same sin that we did that. And I'd go even a step further and say that many of us have what some people would call a vice or a special temptation that is more difficult for them to get over because of how much power it holds over their lives. Judas was tempted with that money. And the devil told him proverbially, if you'll sell Jesus, you'll be happy. That's what he always says. Michael, if you'll just do this, you'll be happy. And I'm ashamed to say, there have been times where I've done that. I've done what the devil has given in front of me as a temptation to do, thinking that it would make me happy. And you know what I found? I'm always miserable after. I'm not happier. And Judas was told, if you'll just do this, you'll be happy. In Luke 22, verses 3 through 6, it tells us that Satan enters into Judas. I don't think that's Luke saying that Satan started working Judas with controls and took him where he wanted to go against his will. But we've often said a disciple of Christ does the will of Christ. I think what Luke is actually saying there is Judas began to be a true disciple of the devil going to do the will of what the devil wanted done. And he went straight away to betray him. For what? 
a small amount of money, an amount of money that was just enough to buy a potter's field, we're told in the Bible. That's what Jesus' life was worth? If they'd given him all the money in the world, it wouldn't have been enough. Jesus has done nothing wrong, and Judas betrays him for monetary gain. And then Matthew 27, verses 1 through 5, tells me that Judas has this awakening moment at fear, it seems. When Jesus is scheduled to be put to death, Judas goes back and says, I don't want this anymore. Take it back. We're not taking that back. You keep it. I'm not keeping it. And he cast it onto the ground. And he went out and he hung himself. Was that the happiness that Satan had promised? It wasn't. And though we've often looked at Judas as the sole betrayer, and don't get me wrong, he betrayed Jesus. He deserves blame for that. Judas himself was betrayed, just like all of us have been betrayed, to follow after his own desires and wants instead of doing the will of of his Lord. Finally, we have a betrayal of God's image when we look at his betrayal itself. We're told in Genesis 1.26, we're made in the image of God, which tells me that the very existence of mankind is attributed not to mankind, but to the Godhead. And all of the likenesses that we possess are not original to us. They come from a creator. I'm not an original creation. Somebody made me. I have a creator, and that's God. And all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve looked at that fruit, and they determined that it was worth risking death. They were told by a serpent, you won't surely die, but they hadn't gotten that in any writing from God that would guarantee that. And so they determined it was worth risking it. And so they ate. And they brought sin into the world. And here we are all the way now in John chapter 18. And God's own image is betraying His Son with a band of troops to take Him to be crucified. And Jesus had to be betrayed by God's image because man, all the way back in the garden, betrayed God. It's so much deeper than just simply Judas was a greedy man. Anybody could have betrayed Jesus. Aren't you blessed, though, as horrible and as sorrowful as this is, that he was betrayed? Aren't we thankful that he was willing to be betrayed? I don't like being betrayed. Jesus knew that was going to happen. He told Judas, whatever you do, do it quickly. You're the betrayer. We shift on in the next part of our lesson to the trials of Jesus. Now, as a little boy and little children, sometimes we used to play, I don't know if kids play it much anymore, but a game called Hot Potato, 
Or you would take an item and you would say hot potato and you'd throw it to someone else and the object of the game is don't hold it for very long, keep passing it to somebody else. That's really what they did with Jesus when they tried Him. He bounced from trial to trial and different leader to different leader and government ruler because He first goes to Annas according to John in John 18 verses 19 through 23. And after this happens, they bounced Him over to the Sanhedrin. Matthew 26, 59 through 66. And in fact, the Sanhedrin, they broke the law. They all broke the law with these trials, but the Sanhedrin, they were not allowed to pronounce a death sentence under Roman captivity. And that's what they did. There are seven different ways that the law was broken when you and I look and study the life of Jesus and His trials, but we find that there's an illegal trial going on for the following reasons. Number one, he could not be arrested at night on that alone. If I were a lawyer and this went to court on that alone, when was the arrest made? Well, we went at night. Uh, that's illegal. Can't do it. But that's not enough. Not only was the arrest made at night when it couldn't be, the Sanhedrin could not instigate charges, which they did. The requirement of two witnesses testifying in agreement to merit the death penalty had not been met. And the court did not meet the reg in the regular meeting place of the Sanhedrin, which was required by Jewish law. And Christ was not permitted a defense. And finally, we mentioned it a moment ago, the Sanhedrin pronounced a death sentence, which they couldn't pronounce. You know, I'm so thankful that our government today is not this corrupt. I'm kidding. <laughs> I thought I lost you for a second there. Whether it's local, state, federal, wherever we go, however far you want to reach it, worldwide, we have corrupt people serving in government. So did they. That's how Jesus died, was because of a corrupt government who decided laws don't matter anymore. We have an agenda. We want this to be done. He's going to die. Don't care what we have to do. Don't care what we have to say. He's going to die. And we're going to make it so. Jesus goes before Pilate and Herod in this process. And Pilate is probably the most interesting interaction that we have of all of them. Herod was excited. He thought a miracle would be performed. And when that didn't happen, he sent him back to, to Pilate. But Pilate, on multiple occasions throughout the gospel accounts, we find him asking Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Tell me the information. What's going on? Why are we here? What's happening? And finally, Pilate's the one that would stand before the people when Jesus is tried before the people and says to the people, I don't see anything wrong with him. I find no fault in the man. But we have a custom. We can release someone this day from being imprisoned. And so I'm going to give you the choice. Jesus or Barabbas, the thief by brutality, a murderer. You pick. Well, give us Barabbas. We don't want Jesus. We want Barabbas. Okay, what, what do I do with him then? I don't remember who said this when I heard it, but it stuck with me all my life. Perhaps one person in the crowd said it first. Crucify him. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, crucify him. And all of a sudden, a chant begins. 
I mentioned in the class this morning that sports is a big part of a lot of people's lives, and I've been privileged to go to several different sporting events throughout my life, and privileged to go to some events where I felt like I couldn't hear anything because of how loud the crowd was. And that's a special atmosphere. When you're hearing everybody chanting together, defense, or they're cheering for a big play that's just happened. It's an energy. And then you think about it with what happened to Jesus, how they began to chant over and over again, like it was some kind of sport. Yeah, crucify Him. Let's kill Him. Well, are you sure that that's what you want to do? Yeah, you know what? His blood be on us and our children. I'm sure their children appreciated that. We just want Him to die. Can't we get on with it? In the midst of this, Barabbas is released and Jesus is scourged. He endures certain punishments. He's beaten and mocked, Matthew 26, 67 through 68, Mark 15, 16 through 20, Luke 22, 63 through 65, and John 19, 1 through 3. All just kind of tell us in roundabout ways that he was beaten and mocked. But we know a study into that deeper is that in some of the accounts we're told he was blindfolded, slapped across the face. People said, come on, prophesy. You're the Son of God. Surely you know who hit you. They spit in his face. I've got a five-year-old that was mentioned the other day. He spit on me. Thought that would be really funny. And I taught him the way of the Lord more perfectly. And I said, we don't spit on anyone. That's mean. Here's Jesus, the Son of God, and we're spitting on Him for sport. Come on, tell us who did it. And He's scourged. Now, I didn't know this until I studied for this assignment. I didn't know until the Texas Heart Institute article popped up in my research you have different arteries and veins throughout your body, you know this, but in the head it's pretty interesting to consider the different veins and arteries that are there. I knew a jugular vein existed, I'd heard of it before, but I didn't know it continued on to the top of your head. That's what the blue indicates, all the way to the top of the head, and then you have arteries going all throughout the head, all around it. I'd heard all my life, the head is the most vascular part of the body, it bleeds more profusely than any other part but it didn't really register with me until I saw these pictures. No wonder the crown of thorns would do such damage. No wonder the head bleeds so much when it's pierced. And I know we've often seen the crown of thorns kind of like a kingly crown. There's a lot of debate on whether it was that type of crown or more of a helmet that would have covered most of the whole head. I believe what we know of the Romans was that they had perfected torture and they'd perfected other things. I would lean more towards the helmet than anything else because it would have been more painful. And though that helmet wasn't a particular process that was standard for the crucifixion, they were trying to dole out punishment here to Jesus. They weren't trying to make it easier on Him. They're mocking Him. Well, He's a king. He needs a crown. Let's fashion Him a helmet. That'll really hurt. Thick spikes going through, piercing every which way with the scourging. 
And by many accounts, we find different conditions that he is surmised to have gone through with hematidrosis. Dr. Legi Thomas said the skin becomes very tender to the touch. Some doctors have said that a standard high five with a person who's undergoing this condition would have been extremely painful, let alone the flesh being ripped and beaten. In fact, the Journal of American Medical Association wrote the following, the severe scourging with its intense pain and appreciable blood loss most probably left Jesus in what we would call a pre-shock state. Moreover, hematidrosis had rendered his skin particularly tender. The physical and mental abuse meted out by the Jews and the Romans, as well as lack of food, water, and sleep, also contributed to his generally weakened state. Therefore, even before the actual crucifixion, his physical condition was at least serious and possibly critical. Dr. W. Edwards wrote that. Before a nail's driven in, he's in a critical condition, at the very least a serious condition, and possibly critical. And it's just a big sport for the people. They're just having a grand old time. He walks to Calvary, but John tells me, as well as Luke, that he couldn't carry his own cross. I think often when we read the passages about Jesus carrying his cross, we kind of think about it like if we were to throw a backpack over our shoulder that was particularly heavy, and we were to walk with that, after a while that would become kind of burdensome, and we'd want relief from that. But I'm not so sure that we remind ourselves of just how brutally beaten he had been how physically exhausted and weak he was. And now they're telling him, hey, carry your cross too. He can't do it. He's mourned and lamented after. In fact, it's interesting. Jesus does not give up his cross by asking for it to be taken from him. It was taking too long. Jesus was carrying that cross and evidently... They didn't like how long it was taking, so they said, all right, you come get the cross and we'll just keep moving. There's no record of Jesus complaining about carrying that cross. There's no record about Jesus saying, don't you know what I've been through? Don't you know what's happened to me? Aren't you aware of what I'm going through right now and you want me to carry this cross? He carried it without complaint until it was taken from him. And then we're told he was mourned and lamented after. The great multitude was following him. That's Luke 23, 27. That's the problem. The reason Jesus was put to death was not simply because his teaching was so hard to hear, though that was a part of it. It was a lot of ego that had to do with the murder of Jesus. We have someone that's standing in our way of all of the people that we want to follow us, Easiest way is to just remove him. Let's kill him. And even up to his death, this great following is still happening. Mourned and lamenting after him. And he turns and shows love and concern for others that were there. Again, think about this. Here's Jesus. Very possibly unrecognizable to most because of the blood and all of the other things that has happened to him. And he turns to these people who are crying for him. And he says... 
don't worry about right now. You need to be concerned about what will happen later. Because if they'll do this in the greenwood, what happens in the dry times? If they'll do this when things are good, what will happen when things aren't so good? How many stories could be read about the Great Depression where certain things were done by people that are hard to believe, but because of how desperate they were? How many stories have been told about people who have gone through severe trauma, but instead of responding to that in a healthy way, they end up going and taking it out on other people as well? When life is hard, they lash out. Jesus says, if they're going to do this when things aren't so bad, if they'll do this to me, what's going to happen when things are bad? Get ready. Be prepared. And then he was led to his death in Luke 23, 32. Luke ends the section with, there were two others also that were with him, criminals, that were led to be put to death. He didn't say all three criminals were led to be put to death. There were two others that were criminals that were led with him to be put to death. Not a single reference in any gospel account would indicate that any type of wrongdoing had been done by Jesus to warrant such a punishment. There should have and could have been three criminals crucified that day. That didn't happen. But where would we be if it did? What hope would we have? The crucifixion is such an odd account to study because the anger that we feel when we read about the betrayal and the trials and the beating and the ultimate death that Jesus endured quickly has to be turned and reminded that we should be thankful that it happened. That's an odd concept for us to grasp a lot of times because it's never good when someone is murdered. But we were pardoned. He came and died so that I wouldn't have to. He gave me a law so that I could follow it and live and do what it says so that I could be with Him again. Therefore, I'm thankful that He was willing to do all of that when He didn't have to. Tell you this, Jesus on one occasion said, Why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Echo the sentiment from this morning I am never going to be good enough to make it into heaven. You know how I know that? I know Michael Clark. He's not a perfect man, he never will be. I have no hope of being a perfect man. What I do have hope is that I'll do what Paul urged those in Corinth, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow after me as I follow after Him. Do my best to be as close to the Son as possible, knowing I'm never going to be like the Son exactly like He is. He's perfect. I'm not. Let me give you some text takeaways from what we've studied tonight very quickly as we bring this to a close. Number one... Following Satan lends and leads us to betrayal. It always ends up with betrayal. In John chapter 8 and verse 37 through 44, Jesus said, You're not Abraham's children, 
You're not God's children. You are of your father, the devil. And the lust or desires of your father, you want to do. No one's forcing you. You're choosing to. And what always happens is betrayal. I love how Paul put it throughout the book of Galatians and how the Hebrews writer puts it that we have no inheritance if we follow the old law. What a blessing it is we're not under the old law today. What a grace and love and comfort that should be to the Christian that I'm not under those commandments. I serve a better law. But if I serve the devil, it will always end in betrayal. Number two, you and I are the reason Jesus was put to death. Because as horrible as it is to read about what the Romans and the Jews did... I killed him. You killed him. We were there in spirit the whole time. How do I know this? Because we took part in the very thing that killed him. We've sinned. The Bible is a wonderful book that shows the love of God, but it's ultimately a book about sin and how to get past it, how to move forward. I'm guilty, and so are you. Isaiah 53 tells us all about the horrible things that happened to Jesus that were prophesied to happen. And it's because of me. And it's because of all of us. Finally, where is our dedication? I want you to one more time picture... Jesus there, he's got his cross, he's struggling, he's been beaten, he's blood soaked, he's exhausted, has hardly any strength, and all the while he's carrying until it was taken from him. And in all reality, if he had to put the cross down on the ground and push it to Calvary, he would have done so. I sometimes think we've read these passages that are on the screen that all say the same thing. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Christ. And we don't have the true image that we're supposed to have. Until I'm ready to be beaten, blood-soaked, exhausted, and still willing to carry it, I don't really understand what it means to carry my cross. I serve a God who could have at any moment said, enough of this. They're not worth it. But His love for us, overpowered the pain that he was experiencing. Carrying his cross until someone took it from him. And so here we are today in 2022, and we have to ask ourselves, do we really grasp the understanding of what denying ourselves mean, and what it means, and what it's supposed to mean? It doesn't mean we deny ourselves when we can agree with the person who's making the statement. 
well, I like this person, and he says I should do this, so I'm going to do it. It doesn't mean we deny ourselves only when it's convenient for us to deny ourselves. The same principle, Jesus carried a cross till it was taken from him. I'm instructed, Michael, carry your cross until you reach eternity, and then I'll take it from you. You serve me every day. You live for me. You serve me. You know what's right from wrong, and you don't fall into the wrong category. You do what's right. And on judgment day, that day, the day that you've died or the day that I come back, I'll take the cross from you, and you can come on in. What is stopping us from doing that but ourselves? The excuses that can be made with travel ball, school, work, whatever. Here's Jesus carrying a cross saying, yeah, I had some things that I would have rather done too, but you needed redemption. And all I want is your love and adoration. Can you not give that back? Can I not give that back? Ultimately, when we talk about Jesus standing before the cross, it's all about this. In our lives, will we choose betrayal or selflessness? To be a true follower of Christ, I've got to deny myself. I've got to stop making it about me. And if I'm not going to do that, I'm not ready, and I'm not willing. I've been married almost eight years, and I've learned in that time, sometimes you have to deny yourself to make your spouse happy, and vice versa. And if I love my wife, I will do things that will make my wife happy, that will help her. I'm married to Christ, Ephesians chapter 5. I'm a part of the church, which is His bride. If I love my Lord, I will serve Him. I will do what needs to be done to be pleasing and acceptable to Him, despite how difficult the world wants to make it. I'll stand and I'll say, no, you move. And so tonight, if you're not a child of God and you need to become one, it's a good time to do so. The book of Acts tells us that if you hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized, doing what the first century Christians did, you'll be what they were. And what they were were members of the body of Christ, Acts 2, 42-47. But they also had to live faithfully. And that's what Acts 2, 42-47 is really all about. It's faithful living. Being what the first century church was, was the exact picture of the church that God intended. And it would be wise for us to go back to remind ourselves what they did and ask the question, are we doing that too? Maybe you're here tonight and you're a child of God that's wayward and wandering. You want to come home and be restored. You can, and He'll bring you back. Like the father looking for his prodigal son, He'll meet you and He'll tackle you and He'll restore you back to the family if you'll come forward and ask for prayer. Whatever need you have, don't betray Him. Come as together we stand and sing.